This past week, uh, in fact, just this morning, I opened up the newspaper and pretty much everything I'm going to talk about was on the first couple of pages of the, uh, the newspaper that I was looking at. But in the headlines, there seems to be a, a current thread that's running. One of the items that continues to come up, especially as people are running for elections and things are coming up, is immigration reform. And one of the uh, articles that uh, was in the newspaper this morning uh, was just about, uh, this comes from the New York Times, Bishops Criticize Tough Alabama Immigration. And uh, it says the Reverend uh, Michael uh, Mitchell Williams and more than 150 other ministers signed a letter uh, protesting this. And there was a, uh, Arizona has passed legislation for this. I think everybody's familiar with that in terms of it being a pretty harsh response um, to immigration and uh, what they as a state felt like they needed to do about it. Well, Alabama has passed one that is even more um, strict and has even more teeth to it. And these local ministers are protesting it on the basis that they can't even be good Samaritans. Part of the law is that if you're driving down the highway and you give aid or transport or lodging or a meal or anything to someone who is illegal, then um, you are violating the law. And so what these ministers are doing, uh, not just Christian ministers, but rabbis and others, they're standing up to say, we're going to break this law because it conflicts with biblical principles. And so it is not a just law. We're, we're going to oppose it. And we see similar things happening in other states as this is becoming an issue. Um, also, in the uh, and there's just, uh, I guess, a wall down at the border. You can see people gathered on one side and... I think this is for the uh, Dia de los Muertos, where they are trying to celebrate together. You've got family on one side of the wall and family on the other, or people coming together maybe who, who used to worship together, and they're finding a way to be able to, uh, to somehow worship together through the wall that's there. Also in the headlines uh, has been the... I'm going to flip through this real quick. You can see the guy, kind of a spooky-looking picture, but in Norway, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, where... Um, this guy, I can't pronounce his name, but he um, was a part of a, a movement within Norway that has been labeled really Christian fundamentalism. That's been debated on whether, whether or not he truly was a, a follower of Christ, but in his writings, he is writing about the fears that he has about Norway changing. Norway becoming more multicultural, multi-ethnic, and he was fearful of this, and so he picked up his gun, decided to go out, to a place where a political party that he didn't agree with was uh, gathering their youth and began shooting youth out on this island. You probably heard about this on the news. And I can't remember what the final count was on those that died. But they had nowhere to go, trapped on this island. And for about 90 minutes, he just hunted children. And, of course, this was after blowing up a building um, elsewhere. And he is commenting that that he was doing this in, in his writings uh, because of how his society was changing and it was becoming less what he thought it ought to be. Also in the headlines, uh, you can see this, uh, things like this on TV, as homosexuality has become such uh, a growing and big issue within politics these days. Where do gays fit into society? Where do gays fit in within the institution of marriage? And this is being discussed, again, as a political year is coming up, uh, these things get, tend to get uh, discussed more and more. But there's legislation that's passed. And, you know, in New York uh, State, it is, it is legal uh, for uh, marriage, same-sex marriage to take place. 
And other states are looking at this, and some states are ready. They say they're ready for it, others say they're not ready for it. But this, is, this kind of discussion has gone on. In fact, it's not only going on within city governments and within states, it's going on within churches. It has been going on within churches for quite some time. As churches get together in the summers and they uh, do their conventions and they talk about uh, really what they believe in and what they don't believe in and all the other things that they tend to vote on uh, in the summer. It's usually a circus to go to one of these, by the way. But uh, as they, uh, you know, this just shows that it's a part of talk and discussion within the church. Where do homosexuals fit in to the church? Do they have a place or should they have a place within the church? Just this past week, Willow Creek Community Church, which is one of the largest churches in America, I think they have about twenty-five or 30,000 people on a weekend. They meet out in one of the suburbs of Chicago. Every summer they have something called the Leadership Summit. And they have top leaders from the nation, not just Christian, non-Christian, just leaders come in and talk about leadership in order to strengthen leadership skills within churches, within businesses, and wherever else in their community. And uh, one of the speakers this past, uh, actually this was last week, was uh, Howard Schultz from uh, Starbucks. And he was on the ticket, he's been on there I think for like two years to come. And uh, just in, in the last week, he declined to come. And Bill Hybels, the pastor of Willow Creek Community Church, stated that it was because of his views about the church not accepting homosexuals into the church. And so Hybels uh, gave a rebuttal to that and commented, but that was the reason for it. So churches are discussing these things as well. And of course, this is a, a horrible, terrible sign, but scripture, I wanted to see the scriptures that were being used there and the smiles on these wonderful faces. This was something else that I saw in Associated Baptist Press. I think it was also picked up in the Baptist Standard. And it's uh, the church's response to families with autism. She says, I've been asked to leave church more than once because my son is autistic and can be disruptive. It is painful for our family to miss church, but we have spent more years outside of the church than inside. Families with autism need to feel welcome in the church in order to be healthy and strong. There are a lot of people like Kevin who need the healing powers that church can bring. Kevin is 17. He struggles with autism, yet that doesn't mean his spiritual needs are unlike ours. Sadly, he is unable to access them because of his disability. He is one of the many autistic children who lack a spiritual home. It says, Kevin has attended Sunday school before, but only when I was able to sit with him. By doing that, I sacrificed worship myself. My son needs supervision 24 hours a day and someone willing to be trained to understand his autism. Uh, she goes on to talk about the, uh, the pastor and just saying that he really doesn't need church, that God's blessing is on him. But can you imagine a church asking her not to come back? These are familiar threads, we, or there is a familiar thread that we see throughout all of this. And it's really an insiders versus outsiders kind of thing. It is who is on the inside and who is on the outside and how can we keep those on the outside from getting on the inside and how can we keep those on the inside from getting out to the outside. And it's what we find happening in our society. We find it happening within our own circles of relationships, don't we? In our own families, in our own organizations. We, we talk about, well, you know, here are the rules for our organization and Really, if you don't meet up to our rules and you don't meet up to our standards and you really can't be in our club or in our group, and it's just a natural part of sociology of how we group ourselves together. 
And so as we consider what this means for us as a church, by the way, the church intersects or crisscrosses with each one of these particular issues, does it not? You've heard a church response or uh, the church getting involved in these issues and each one of these that I've mentioned, we could look at a lot more this morning, we just don't have time to do so. But what is the church to do? Because the church is wrapped up in all of these issues. Jesus gives us a lesson today in the Scripture. And it's not a direct kind of teaching where Jesus says, do this and don't do that. It is a difficult passage to read. And if you heard it correctly just a moment ago, you probably winced a little bit when you went, wait a minute, what did Jesus just say here? So I invite you to look, look back at the page here with me in this uh, gospel text because it really is one of those that's quite controversial. And I will tell you, I've been trying to get Jesus off the hook all week long with this passage. I have preached on this passage many times before, and I, I have, I'll, I'll tell you in a minute how I've kind of gotten Jesus off the hook a little bit. But I really don't think that we can. If we're going to be honest with the text, honest with the cultural setting and the context of what's going on here, we really can't get Jesus off this hook. It's there. And we have to understand what is meant by this. Why is this word here for us Today. Well, Jesus, in the first part, and if you look there, that first big paragraph, there's all this about the Pharisees, and they're giving Jesus a hard time like they always do. Jesus didn't wash his hands before eating. Okay, this was the rule that Jesus broke. This was a part of their inside club rules. This is a law that, that they made, and, and everybody had to toe the line. And so Jesus didn't wash his hands. And he's getting in trouble for it. And so there's this conversation about what, what goes inside. Is that what defiles you? Or does it really, is it something on the inside? Jesus says, yes, it's from the heart. It's the heart that matters. You could do all these things and you could look clean and nice and pure on the outside. You could not wash not only your hands, but your whole body. And as Jesus would say in a later conversation, you're like, uh, you know, tombs. You're... You're clean and whitewashed on the outside, but on the inside it's decay and dead. And so Jesus here says it's, it's not about washing hands. It's about what's in the heart. And I, I love how he just says this and, and leaves them thinking, scratching their heads like, what? And Peter, and in the other gospel, it, it, it talks about uh, in, in other places that the disciples ask. But Peter here is asking, what are you talking about, Jesus? Could you explain this? This parable or whatever it was that you just said, could you explain it to us or, you know, really, particularly me? I didn't catch it. I don't think I understand what you're saying. And so Jesus gives them some understanding about it here. It looks at first like this part of the, the passage in Matthew 15 doesn't really connect with the rest, but it does. And you'll see in just a second. But Jesus, it says, left that place. He wanted to get away. He wanted to go on vacation to get away from the Pharisees and all this craziness. Can you imagine the kind of uh, grief and the kind of problems that he was having here with the, the, not only the disciples but the Pharisees? But it says he went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. He went away, he got out of the boundaries of Israel. He, he's going outside of that to get far, far away from all of this for a while. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting and so Jesus is thinking, oh, you know, I was trying to get away from all this stuff, all the chaos and everybody bugging me and just all this going on, and I'm trying to get out and maybe just spend some time alone with the Father. And here comes this woman. 
And Matthew describes her as a Canaanite woman. Now, how bizarre is that? I mean, Canaanites went way back before um, you know, Israel, the Hebrew people even came in. They talked about the Canaanites. They entered into Canaan, to the land of promise. And you see descriptions in the Old Testament about Canaanites, but in the Gospels you don't see that about Canaanites. What is Matthew trying to emphasize here? She was indeed a foreigner. She was not a part of Jesus' religion. She was not a part of His culture. She was outside of the boundaries. In fact, just because she was a woman, Jesus really shouldn't have even been, been talking to her. And so He ignores her. She cries out, Jesus! Now, she's a smart woman. And we get the idea that she's, she's probably pretty well educated. And she understands Jesus' religion. She understands what it is that's going to get His attention. And so she uses a Hebrew messianic term, Jesus, son of David. Hoping that would stop him in his tracks. Because her daughter back home is sick. Or she's tormented by demons. And what they typically thought was when you were sick, you were tormented by demons. We don't really know if she was truly tormented by demons or if it was just a terrible sickness. Either way, she had a lot of trouble. And so Jesus keeps on going. says, Jesus doesn't stop. For him to stop or for any Jewish man to stop and talk to a Canaanite woman or a Gentile woman, much less any woman, would mean that he is putting her on equal status with him in his culture. And so he just does what every other Jewish man would have done. He just ignores her and walks on. But this woman is not to be ignored. She cries out. She, she is pestering all of them so much the disciples say, Jesus, send her away. She's just bugging us. You're on vacation after all. And we kind of are too because we're here with you. And so what does he do? He engages her in conversation. And what does he say to her? I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, of which you are not one. I wasn't sent here for you. I was sent here for the people back home. And I'm trying to get away from them. And I really don't want to have to deal with you because you're not one of them. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. He answered, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Really? Did Jesus really just say that? Yeah, He did. Matthew wants us to know this. Jesus is using discriminating language to her. It's an ethnic, racial slur, basically, because Jesus says, we're a part of Israel, and God has given me a mission to be a Messiah to the people. I'm going to establish the kingdom for Israel. She is not inside the boundaries. She's outside the boundaries. Jesus is walking outside of these boundaries and refers to her as a dog. Now, some commentators have said, well, this is a diminutive in the Hebrew, I mean, in the Greek language, and, and he's really saying little puppy. <laughs> now, seriously, there's some commentaries that say that, and that's supposed to make us feel better. I have tended to read this and go, I can't deal with that with that because you know I, when I think of Jesus I just think about the divine aspect of Jesus and, and let me tell you I fully believe in the divinity of Christ he was fully god but what's the second half of that he's fully human as well and so he, we find him here in the midst of his divinity and his humanity here and and I've I thought well Jesus was just testing her well that's a pretty cruel kind of test isn't it to say this in front of those people, in front of the disciples, and her daughter is at home sick, 
and troubled and you're a dog. I can't give care to you. Well, she just is feisty and comes right back to Jesus and says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Touche. <laughs> Jesus, I'm not going to let you get away with this. And so what happens here with Jesus? Jesus answered her, Wow, woman, <laughs> great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And instantly, or that, there's that idea that we looked at last week, immediately, Jesus acts with immediacy, immediately or instantly, she is healed. I mean, the, the daughter is healed. Now, again, I, I say she's back home. We get the idea that she's not right there with her, but there is this confirmation that she is healed. And we see this in other healings that Jesus does as well. Jesus understood something new about boundaries, did He not? Jesus was called to Israel, but God said, wherever you draw the line, I'm going to extend it even more. The Gospel is to go to the Gentiles. And I think Jesus in this moment realized and remembered what the mission of God is all about. In Isaiah 56, which Kyle read earlier, if you look back at that earlier, uh, up, up top on your page, thus says the Lord, maintain justice and do what is right. There's enough right there if you want to circle that. Do what is right, for soon my salvation will come. And he says, and the foreigners, those who are not a part of the house of Israel, who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it, and hold fast My covenant, these will I bring to My holy mountain, and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices, will be accepted on My altar. For My house shall be called what? A house of prayer for all peoples. Remember when Jesus quoted that? Walked into the temple... The money changers are there. They realize that the Gentiles, the foreigners, couldn't come in and exchange money. Jesus knocks down the tables, kicks them down, gets really angry. This shall be a house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus understood it. Jesus remembered. And we see further evidence of that. If you have your Bible, if you look down in Matthew chapter 15, look in verse 29, right after this passage is over, Jesus goes out and He multiplies for 4,000 people fish and bread, just like He did for the 5,000. The difference here though, is that this is 4,000 Gentiles. Jesus understood this whole boundary thing and He begins to move out with great compassion and His mission and His boundaries have been extended. And there he is, caring for the Gentiles. It's an amazing kind of thing. It's an amazing story that Jesus, uh, that Matthew provides for us here about Jesus. I, I remember when I was, this was several years ago, uh, I was involved in the Chamber of Commerce uh, leadership class. And that class for a whole year works on some leadership things and leadership development for service here in the Shreveport area. Uh, whether it's serving on nonprofit boards or working uh, with the government or you know, just doing different things to develop businesses and, and things within the community. So I went through this. And each month you go and you tour different places and learn everything there is about the city. Well, before you get to do all of that, you have to go on this retreat. And it happens every year in uh, February out at Camp Bethany. And uh, they make you, you know, you, you can't uh, use your cell phones out there. It's one of those things. It's pretty intense. You, you get a lot of learning in on the front end. It's, it's an exciting time. But one of the things that we did on this retreat 
was play something called SimSock. I don't know if you all have ever played this game or heard of it. SimSock is short for Simulated Society. It's a role-playing game where you are developing a society and crafting it in a certain way so that you can learn how to do this when you get out in the real society and learn how different groups work with each other or don't work with each other. So this was to take place on Friday night. They got some guy in from South Louisiana to come, and he's like an expert on SimSock, to come in, and we had read all the rules and everything that was supposed to take place. On Friday night, after the the welcome time, they uh, take you over to this room and take away all your cell phones and fun paraphernalia, and they uh, leave you in there, and then they come in and tell you which group you're in based on colors. You know, you're in the blue, you're on the blue team or the red team or the yellow or the white. They've got different ones. And so once they tell you what color, they tell you where to go into this particular building. Well, I was on the red team and I had no idea what that meant. None of us did. But we went inside this room and they closed the door and uh, all of a sudden we heard uh, something go up against the door. and All of a sudden we kept trying to find the lights to the room and no one could find the lights to the room, and there were no chairs to sit down in this room. And there were about 12 of us on this particular team. And so we started fumbling around. We found a desk, and somebody found an emergency candle in there, and then we found some matches and lit the candle. But there we were in darkness with one candle lit, trying to figure out, okay, did somebody make a mistake here? What's going on? We could hear people laughing down the hallway and different groups. Well, it didn't take us long to figure out that we as the red group were the poor group. <laughs> we had absolutely nothing. We didn't have any food. We didn't have any play money. We didn't have any representatives. We didn't have any jobs. We didn't have any kind of communication with the outside world. Except occasionally, someone would come in from the newspaper group or the media group, and they would interview us and ask us, you know, what, why don't you have any money? Or why don't you have any jobs? And We would ask them to help us, and several of us tried to get outside the door, and the guy rudely just shut it in our face and kept us locked in there. This went on for about three hours, and we got pretty upset. There's a little rule within the game where you can create a riot. We tried to do that, and we couldn't even do that. We didn't have two nickels to rub together. And through that game, we began to understand. We would get together that night. In fact, it got to be such a long game, they finally just called it off late in the evening, we gathered together to find out that there were other groups. There were some groups that were making a lot of money over here in one of these, uh, one of these yellow groups. And they were developing businesses and just had so much money they didn't know what to do with it all. There were other groups that were developing um, uh, you know, c- communities and, and building neighborhoods and doing all kinds of things. There were others who were involved in the stock market and they were making money and all kinds of things were happening. We all started talking about it. And everybody just left the red group completely out of it. And we felt it. And all of us in that room completely understood, or understood as best we could, what it feels like to have nothing. Have you ever felt that way? This whole inside-outside thing? You know what it feels like to be on the inside, don't you? I mean, every one of us, even if we find ourselves outside a lot, we know what it feels like to be on the inside. You're on the inside of a family. Right now, you're on the inside of a church. You're on the inside of organizations. And it feels good. It feels There's a sense of pride that's there. Well, I'm on the inside. I'm, I'm in a group, or I'm in a club, or I'm in a particular organization. And you kind of look at those who are outside, and you begin to think differently about them, and you just feel good about being on the inside. It, it's really bad being on the outside. But you know what that feels like too, don't you? 
If you've ever been in middle school, <laughs> you know what it feels like to be on the outside because that's that part of development where everybody gets their little cliques and their little groups and they begin to divide themselves out in certain ways. And well, if you're not in the cowboy group, you're not, you're not good enough. If you're not in the, in the uh, nerdy group, then you're not good enough. That's the one I was in. If you're not on the, on the football team, then if, you know, who are you to talk to me if you're not on the football team? Or if you're not a cheerleader, all of you people on the drill squad, or, you know, how, why should I even talk to you? All these things take place within our early development, but they go on and on, don't they? And we know what it feels like to be on the outside, to have not what we need to have, to not feel what we need to feel, and not to be included in the things maybe that other people are included in. But think about what it feels like to be on the inside, stepping on the outside to include someone who's on the outside who ought to be on the inside. You with me? That feels pretty good. Have you ever done that? Well, this is what Jesus experienced. And it's really what we're to experience as well. It is good for us to remember how God really feels about the outsiders. Wherever it is that we draw the line of boundary, of where we think God wants us to be or where God's circle ought to be, God always extends it out. Doesn't He? Look throughout history. God keeps drawing the line larger and larger, and we find that right here in Isaiah 56. It's for everybody. Foreigners are loved by God. And Israel missed it so many times because they thought it was about them and their circle. And God says, no, I want you to be in this circle so you can go outside and, and bring everybody in. That's your mission. And they missed it. And God says, they're blind. And they don't know what they're doing. The church ought to be at the forefront of the welcoming party. Shouldn't it? And so many times, sadly, throughout even recent history, that has not been the case. There's a great story that comes from the movie Antoine Fisher. Anybody seen that movie? There's a great summation that is written about it by David Slagle and Wynn Collier. And I, I read it this week and I wanted to read it to you because it is so powerful. Antoine Fisher is the true story of a young man abandoned at birth by an incarcerated woman who was raised in abusive orphanage, foster homes, and reform schools. After his 18th birthday... He joins the Navy where his anger towards life brims to the surface. After several fights, he's ordered to undergo counseling. Psychologist Jerome Davenport, who is played by Denzel Washington, uh, encourages Antoine to find his roots to begin healing. After several phone calls, he reaches one aunt and uncle in Cleveland who escort him to a, a, a dilapidated apartment complex where there, his estranged mother lives. A suspicious and aloof woman comes to the door. Upon realizing that Antoine is the child that she gave up at birth, she retreats to another room, sits down on a soiled and worn couch, and you see her crying silently. Antoine asks for some explanation as to why she never came to rescue him or why she never sought him out. She cannot answer. She simply stares ahead, not daring to look at him with tears rolling down her expressionless face. He gently kisses her on the cheek as if to say, I forgive you. And he walks away. 
His mother remains on the couch and stares at nothing, making no effort at all to respond to him. A despondent fisher leaves the apartment with his questions unanswered and rides back to his aunt's house with his uncle. As he exits the car, his slow gait betrays the loneliness of a man with no hope of a meaningful connection to anyone. As Antoine enters the front door, however, his world changes. He is met with a chorus of cheers from 50-plus relatives, all waiting to meet Antoine for the first time. There are children, couples, cousins, uncles, and family friends, all smothering him with hugs, slaps on the back, and beaming smiles. One cousin tells him his name is Edward and says, I'm named after your dad. And an older aunt squeezes his cheeks. Don't you always love it when older aunts come and squeeze your cheeks? Antoine takes it all in. He's overwhelmed. The hallway stairs are filled with kids holding up signs with his name scribbled next to Crayola sketch smiley faces and rainbows. He is then led into the next room where a grand feast is spread across a long table. The table is overflowing with chicken, mashed potatoes, pancakes, fruit salad, and every possible dish. The room is prepared for a party. For the first time in his life, he is being adored. For the first time, Antoine belongs. As the clamor quiets, an elderly woman sitting behind the table knocks to get Antoine's attention and then waves for him to come over next to her. With slow, deliberate moves, she raises her arms, grabbing his hands and then caressing his face. A slow tear runs down her cheek. And with a raspy voice that seemed as if it was mustering all the strength that it possessed, she whispered the redemptive invitation, Welcome. Welcome. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of how God really feels about outsiders. Let's pray.